Welcome to the Paper Dice Games Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 2. My name is James Saran, and today I'll be talking about the old-school D&D module, the Shady Dragon Inn, gatekeeping and hobbies, my projects, and more. Now to start today, I want to talk about a cool game that I have uh, really been enjoying probably the past six years. It's a game that I play every single year. I play it twice every single year. And the game is called College Basketball Dynasty by Robert M. Carroll. Now, there are two main reasons why I really, really, really love this game. It's a print and, First of all, it's a print-and-play game, and in this game, you are the coach of a college basketball team, and basically, you recruit players, take those players through their college career, you manage those players trying to develop their skills, and if you're lucky and good enough at the game, then you'll make it to the March Madness Tournament and potentially even win the March Madness Tournament. So there are two main reasons why I love this game. The first is it is very, very thematic about a sport that I really, really love. I love watching March Madness men's and women's NCAA basketball. It's something I do every year, fill out the brackets. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very fun for me. So, so it's a very thematic game, and I get to be in the coach's seat in the game to that whole experience. Uh, the second reason why I really, really love this game is there, I think, is it, it's got an innovative... A series of mechanics around developing your players. So I'll talk a little bit about that here so you get a good sense of, of how the game plays. Now the game is set up in three phases. All right, The first phase is recruiting. So at the end of every year you recruit more players to play for your college team. Uh, the second phase is your management phase. It's where you determine where the players are going to go on your team. And then the th third phase is determining your uh, your your season results and your tournament results for the season, and uh, these phases are uh, there's there's it's a little bit more complex than that, but that's how the game plays. So in the recruiting phase, basically, since it's, since since it is a print and play game, you are cutting up uh, pieces of paper. You get these little tokens, and on the tokens, uh, each token represents a player, and on the token is um, the player's stats, and they have a position: guard, forward, and center. Uh, they have a modifier. Um, and the modifier is split between a season modifier and a tournament modifier. Uh, and so a season modifier might be plus two, and a tournament modifier might be plus one. And that would mean that that player in particular plays well during the season and just slightly less well, but still well during the tournament. There's some crazier modifiers, like plus two for their season modifier and minus four for a tournament modifier, meaning they're great during the season, but they choke during the big dance. Uh, and so what you're doing in the recruiting phase is you're identifying what players you need based on their position based on the modifiers uh, and there's also one more stat on there and it's called team or individual and basically what that is showing is that whether or not that's a team player or an individual player and as a team the more team players you have the more opportunities you have at bonuses and additional positive modifiers so once you recruit your team you put your team onto a roster board and this is the second phase of the game where you actually manage the team and this is where i find the most joy in the game um if you're watching the video i'll pull this up for you if you're not watching it i'll describe it so the roster board is a basically a piece of paper that's set up kind of like a spreadsheet but not really and it's got four columns and each column represents a year you would uh, like a grade in college. So freshman, sophomore, 
junior, and senior. And so those are the four columns. And then there are 10 rows, and those rep rows represent the um, spot that player has on the team. So there's five starting rows, there's like a sixth player row, and then there's uh, rows seven through 10, which represent the bench. Now, when you're managing your team, you're determining, okay, I got three freshmen, who's going who's to be starters, who's going to be on the bench, that type of thing. And you go through all your players and their, and their grades, and it's kind of like putting this puzzle together, trying to op, ma maximize the amount of points you can get out of them. But it's not just that, because at the end of each year, so a player transitioning from their freshman year to the sophomore year, there are modifiers that could happen to that player's stats. Same thing when a, a sophomore transfer or transitions to a junior and from when a junior transitions to a senior. And these modifiers are um, asymmetrical between the years. So, for example, the best bonus you can have is when you're a junior transferring to your senior year in the top spot. And so you're not only balancing and managing your team based on the most uh, the most positive results you can get from their stats based on this year, you're also trying to manage the team based on future years. And that's an interesting, fun tension that I really love about the game. Uh, I, I agonize in a very, very good and fun way over this part of the game. But once your team is set and you understand where everyone's going to go, uh, you add up your modifiers, you end up getting a season score, and that represents the amount of wins you get for the year. And then uh, based on that, if you're playing solo, which is what I do, um, I think you have to hit like 22 wins for the season and you get invited to the March Madness tournament, the big dance. Um, if you're playing multiplayer, which this game also supports, I think that number scales down because multiplayer is a little bit harder. Uh, in the game... As written in 2008, um, the tournament results are basically just based on your season score, or it, it's the same system as your season score, but there's a really, really fun uh, change to the rules on Board Game Geek that I use where you're rolling dice based on your tournament score, and that determines how far you advance in the tournament. So for each round, you're rolling dice, and I find that way more exciting than the initial rules. But that's the game. And then you start over at recruiting. Your seniors age out. Everyone else transitions up based on the bonuses that they get in the transition. Or if they're on the bottom of the bench, there's negatives. Uh, and then you recruit a new class. And uh, like I said, I really enjoy it. It's free to play. You can download it at boardgamegeek.com. Boardgamegeek.com, excuse me. Uh, I've written at least one article about it, I think, on paperdicegames.com. Uh, and just kind of outlining what I just said, why I really, really enjoy it. Um, yeah, and I wanted to highlight it because it's it's a game I play every year. Uh, I absolutely adore the game. I think it's a really, really good match between the mechanics of the game and the flavor of the game. Uh, and yeah, I love the uh, the management phase where you're really taking your, your team and you're balancing success now versus success later. And I think that matches um, you know coaching at a high level in general. So I wanted to call that game College Basketball Dynasty by Robert M. Carroll. Uh, link will be in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. Now, we're on to our season focus for this episode, and today's season focus, uh, or this season's focus, is for old school D&D modules, and today's focus is on AC1, the Shady Dragon Inn. So if you're watching the video, I'll hold the cover up to the camera here. And if you're not watching the video, I'll just describe it just briefly. Um, this is a purple cover. It says Dungeons and Dragons in the big 80s font. There's a white bar across the top, not diagonal, but all the way across the top that says AC1, Dungeons and Dragons game accessory. And then, of course, it says Shady Dragon Inn by Carl Smith. And the image just shows several different looking characters. There's at least one elf, probably a hobbit, um, some humans of the different classes, and a dwarf. All at the table and they're scheming or maybe the dwarf is telling the story 
and there's some candles. So that's what the cover looks like. Now, uh, the AC modules or game accessories um, are not adventures. They're all game accessories. So this one, AC1, is called the Shady Dragon Inn, and it's a, a list of pre-generated characters for a D&D fantasy game, as it says on the title. Uh, there are other AC um, supplements or, or game accessories um, that, I, th that exist out there. I, I don't have most of them. This is one of the only ones I have. But there's character record sheets there. Apparently, at one time, was a 3D dungeon you could build through one of these modules. Um, I just received in the mail the Book of Mar Marvelous Magic, which I have not read yet, but I'm excited to. And again, this one uh, focuses specifically on pre-generated characters. Now, it's kind of a two-in-one because there is also a map of an inn. So, like a floor, pl floor plan of an inn. That's the Shady Dragon Inn. Um, but that is not the focus of this. The focus is definitely uh, the pre-generated characters. And um, I've had a lot of fun over the years reading these uh, because they are uh, pretty great. Basically... Um, it's got the characters split up into classes and races, so like fighters, magic users, clerics, thieves, and then dwarves and elves, I believe, are the different options that you have to look at. And for each of them, it kind of shows a like a party picture of all the fighters, for example, and then it has this neat little silhouette image with the numbers uh, for each fighter. So um, you would look at like fighter number eight and then find the number eight entry, and it would give you a, the, their name, their stats, and then usually their equipment and one paragraph about what makes them interesting or, or a little bit of a backstory. So I'll read two of them here for you. This is uh, fighter number three, Boris Bonesnapper. Um, Boris got his name when fighting a de desert tribesman for a share of booty taken on a raid he broke both man's arms and then told him to take what you want the man took nothing and boris had his double share of treasure no one doubts his fighting ability but word has it that this 6-3 foreigner is insane so that gives you a ton of backstory and a lot of a lot to go on if you're going to use this character as a uh, as an npc or something like that you can have a lot of fun with these characters, um, putting them into your campaigns. And, and what I like most about this book is it, it gives you enough to go on. Like reading Boris Bonesnappers, I could run this NPC right now and I just uh, read it. I mean, I, I'm aware of Boris Bonesnapper and have ran him as an NPC before. But if you're coming into this cold, you could read that paragraph and say, oh, I can play this NPC. There's enough there to go on and, uh, you know, playing a, a crazy 6-3 fighter sounds like a lot of fun. I'll read one more here. This is Magda Mountain Splitter. This is a dwarf. So I have to turn over to the dwarf section and find Magda. And her paragraph says, Magda stands three feet, four inches tall and weighs 110 pounds. She has brown hair and eyes. She likes other dwarves, but is suspicious of most elves and many men. Magda hates orcs and once stopped a war party by going down a shaft alone and knocking all the supporting timbers away. The mountain collapsed on the orcs, wiping them out. Magda would gladly repeat her stunt, but most adventurers she joins do not want to kill orcs in that manner. She has the magic she has the magic warhammer she uses and shows its golden haft proudly. So that's a little bit about Magda, and again, you get a sense of who Magda is. She's willing to go down in a mine by herself and knock out all the supports and then escape trying to trap and eventually killing the dwarf or the orc raiding party. So you tell, you know, maybe she's a little crazy, or maybe she's a mine expert, you know, maybe these are things about her. Um, she really hates orcs, clearly, and uh, she's got a magic Warhammer that she's very, very proud of. So, um, if you get the opportunity to check out the Shady Dragon Inn, uh, there's a ton of really good stuff here. 
I absolutely love it, and I suggest that you check it out. In the past, I have used um, the Shady Dragon in mostly for a quick character creation. Uh, so if I just want to run a fast game and I don't want to go through character creation, um, which is rare, but it has happened, uh, I just grab a character from there and go with it. Uh, it's fun. It feels like I'm adding to the history of the character that's already been established in the book, which is always a big thing for me. Matching history with gaming is a huge motivation of mine. I also use it as um, NPCs. That's the main use that I have for characters from the Shady Dragon Inn. Uh, usually, if I'm running a campaign and I need some NPCs, that's one of the first places that I go because they're easy. Um, and like I said, that paragraph is usually bursting with adventure hooks or history for the character or a good sense of who they are and who their motivations are. Um, and the last thing that I do is I usually just read the book. I, every few years, I feel like I just sit down and read through the Shady Dragon Inn. It's, even though I've read it for a few times, I think it's a fun read. Every time I'm left with like a different little nugget of information or an idea for something that kind of I catalog and, and use later. Now, one thing that I have not used it for that is also very interesting, uh, second edition Dungeons and Dragons, it, it, one of the main parts of that game is followers. It's specifically written in the rules that the characters will generate followers at some point. And the module suggests that you use the characters in there as uh, swords for hire, or in other words, possibly followers. And I think that it, I've never done that, but I think it's such a cool idea because Again, each of those, the characters in there, they their, their paragraph of description gives them a motivation and a personality. And I think it would be a lot of fun to add this in the gameplay where, you know, you get Boris Bonesnapper as a follower, but, you know, maybe his values don't match up with your own characters. And now all of a sudden the the DM presents a, a, a situation where Boris Bonesnapper's values, where he knows he can snap a man's arms to double his treasure, does not match that of the paladin who is Boris Bonesnapper's leader or um, the person who hired him. So very interesting stuff. Again, if you get the chance, uh, the Shady Dragon Inn is worth at least looking at. Uh, I don't know if there's a PDF version available, um, but physical copies are not too expensive at this point, um, at least from what I've seen. So I, yeah, I suggest checking it out if you get the chance. Now, I do want to move on to project updates. Uh, last session, or last episode, I should say, I talked a little bit about Dwarf Mine, what it is. It was my big release for last year. And I talked about one of the expansions I have coming up, which was the Bloodlines expansion and a little bit more on that later. But another expansion that I have coming up is the More Rooms expansion. And I wanted to go into that in a little bit more detail. Now, last episode, I talked about the idea of dwarf the, the idea of dwarf mine is to use the the way you draw or build your mine as a mechanic for gameplay in other words when you build your mine that impacts how the game plays and one of the areas i did an okay job at but could have improved at was making the rooms uh tough fun and exciting to decide which rooms to have a few of the people that that played the game and and wrote about it and reviewed it specifically mentioned that there's never a reason why you would never get five hovels there's never a reason why you would never get five barracks and so the beginning of every game is about the same and i i totally agree with those assessments and reviews and that's why i built this expansion this more rooms expansion and the reason is i wanted to make rooms that would drive you to different gameplay 
So for example, one of the rooms is called a mine commons. Basically, uh, this is a, a very large room and it adds 1d6 population per turn, which is very, very powerful in dwarf mine. However, to build the mine commons, you cannot have more than three barracks in your mine. What that means is you're sacrificing your attack power for the ability to grow a larger population in your mine. And that's a gameplay decision that's going to lead to a different type of game. And that's a decision that you, you have to you, you have to make early and it's going to differ, um, you know, the last game you played from this one. Um, I have another one that's basically the other way. It's called Combat School. It gives you 1d6 damage to each attack, but you can have no more than three hovels be built in your mind. So same type of thing. These rooms are giving you uh, more powerful uh, abilities for your mind, but they are um, they're, they're kind of, it's at a price, right? And that's a fun decision that you get to make. You get to try it out. It gives you a different flavor and a different opportunity to run your mine. And so those are the types of rooms in this expansion. Um, the other one that I want to highlight, it's something called the main mine shaft. Uh, and this one is very, very powerful because each round you get, uh, or each turn you get 1d6 gold just for building the main mine shaft. Um, however, the depth at which you have to build it is 20 squares. So that's going to put you at the very, if you, if you, balance it out on the dwarf mountain dwarf mine mountainscape it'll put you at the very bottom of mine level three but if you're not careful and you don't plan for it but you want it later that'll drop you to mine level four immediately so again it's a very powerful ability especially if it's built early but it comes at a price because it pushes you deeper into the mountain than you may have wanted to go uh, at the beginning, at the beginning of the game, but you get a ton of gold, which means you can buy, buy more rooms and build more rooms, which in turn is going to give you more benefits. So these are the types of the, um, these are the types of uh, rooms that I have in this expansion. The goal is to drive different gameplay and really live up to the creed that I put in the rules that no two minds are the same. And that's generally true when you play, but as one reviewer pointed out, you know, their first five turns are always going to be the same because they're going to build the same rooms to kind of get their mind going and their, and their engine going. So, um, that, that expansion's coming. Uh, again, I don't have a date on it. I don't like putting dates on things because, um, you know, family comes first and my day job comes first and sometimes things come up and I just can't uh, follow through with commitments. So I don't make them, but I'm hoping in about a month in about a month that'll be out. So we'll see. Um, the second thing that I've been working on is I've been play testing, uh, or I've been um, building uh, an introduction D20 role-playing adventure. Uh, and the, um, the goal of the adventure is to be able to bring people who are interested in role-playing but have not had an experience to ex uh, experience it and bring them in and have them play this particular adventure. Um, it'll have like very simplified characters that are pre-generated and it will highlight a number of different um, aspects of a d20 system so obviously combat will be in there unique monster will be in there uh, but also things like negotiation and problem solving and a lot of the other areas of role playing that sometimes fall by the wayside i want to make sure that there's highlighting uh there's enough highlighted there for everyone um i play tested this a year ago put it down um it was good but there needed to be some uh something more to it. It just felt like a regular run-of-the-mill adventure and I wanted it to be exciting, um, <laughs> not just, you know, whatever. So um, so I got a few more ideas. I have contacted two of my groups that I play games with for the one shot. They both agreed. We're trying to find dates. And so I have um, two more playtesting sessions coming up and that one I'm hoping to have out by the end of the year. But again, uh, no, other, no other news on that. I'll definitely have more information after the playtest there. Because I'm talking about my projects, I do want to have a giveaway. So 
Um, last episode, I talked about the Bloodlines expansion for Dwarf Mine, and um, I'm going to release that expansion uh, for free um, as soon as this podcast hits. So if you go to paperdicegames.com, the first uh, the top post on the blog roll uh, right on the homepage should say something about the Bloodlines expansion. And from that post, you can download the one-page, two-page Bloodlines expansion uh, and start playing with it right now. And that'll, like I said, if you've purchased Dwarf Mine in the past, like if you purchased it last episode or in this last week during the 50% off sale, um, when I publish the Bloodlines expansion with the base game, you'll just see the update come through and you'll get it for free. If you have not purchased Dwarf Mine yet, you can go get it at itch.io or DriveThruRPG. Um, and then, the, like I said, the Bloodlines expansion is free for, for now. And uh, you'll just be able to play with the Bloodlines expansion and the base game. And again, the expansion will be wrapped up into the base game probably within a month when I release it. So if you're interested, free expansion, paperdicegames.com. It'll be the top post there. It'll be called the Bloodlines expansion for Dwarf Mine. Now I wanted to transition now to the topic discussion for this podcast, and the topic discussion is something about is is about gatekeeping in hobbies, and this is something that I absolutely hate. <laughs> uh, don't do it. Don't be a gatekeeper in a hobby. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what it is, what it looks like, why people do it, and then how to kind of work against it. So uh, gatekeeping in hobbies basically happens. When an entrenched player in the hobby, so someone who's been playing for a few years, something like that, um, they encounter someone new to the hobby and they rebuff that new player. And usually it's in the way of saying things like, oh, that's not real um, gaming or, oh, uh, you're not a true gamer unless you blah, 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 blah. And, excuse me. And what that is, is that's a form of gatekeeping because now the uh, entrenched player in the hobby, the person with more experience, uh, you can imagine them as if they're standing by a gate and the new player wants to come in and the new player has these fun, exciting ideas and is very energetic and enthusiastic about the hobby. But the gatekeeper, this experienced uh, gamer, is sitting there at the doorway and just saying, no, you can't come in because of whatever. I've experienced this a few ways. Uh, actually quite a bit. Um, I remember one time <laughs> I've been getting in, into chess a little bit and I remember a few years ago before the Queen's Gambit, before I started getting into chess a little bit. Um, I, I've always been a fan of chess, but not like a, I wasn't into it. You know, I just played it once in a while. And I was at a retreat somewhere and um, someone brought out a chess board. So I said, oh, I love chess. You know, I, I want to play. I want to play chess. And so someone came up and they said, do you love chess? And I said, yeah, I love chess. And they're like, really? Do you really like it? And I said, yeah. And they're like, what color of this, what color, uh, what color square should be in the bottom left of the board? And so I got the answer to that question wrong. I said, white, the answer is black. And they kind of did like a, you're not into chess. And that's just a perfect example of gatekeeping. I was a casual chess player. I loved chess. I just didn't follow it or study it or know any openings, you know? And so this person who knew chess openings and followed it and studied it uh, saw me as a new person coming in and they became a gatekeeper. They rebuffed my enthusiasm for the game um, for some reason. And, and I'll tell you about why I think that is in a second. I've also seen gatekeeping a lot in the more recent growth of the OSR community. OSR standing for old school role playing. It's where people get together and either play old school modules or play games that are fashioned after old school modules. 
And one of the really interesting things that happens in OSR uh, message boards like Reddit is people often say, well, what defines an OSR game? And the problem is there is no definition. There's some general tenets that you know OSR games can abide by, but there's no hard and fast rule. And when I encounter people who are OSR enthusiasts, a lot of the time I see gatekeeping happen because they feel, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, um, but... I shouldn't say what they feel, but there's a they what um what they do is they see energetic young people coming and looking at OSR stuff, and then they they rebuff the enthusiasm by saying, oh, that's not real OSR because blank, right? Um, and so those are those are two examples that I've seen and in, in personally experienced, and I think I'll say think now I think the reason why people are gatekeepers is is a reason of status. I think a lot of people crave status. And uh, anytime you're in a group talking about something, there's going to be a, a feeling of status within the group. You know, if somebody has personalized experience with the topic of discussion, they're going to have a little bit higher status. If someone has history with the topic or if someone has studied the topic, their status is going to elevate as they talk. Whereas if you are a person who does not have that experience, history or personal relation with this topic, your status will go down more and the dynamics of a group conversation are greatly influenced by status. And I think gatekeeping occurs because people crave status. And so people who have been in the hobby for a little bit and have experienced it more, they realize, hey, I have some knowledge. And then a new player comes along without that knowledge. And so the experienced player wants to show off their status in the hobby, and the way they do that is gatekeeping. That's my take. I'm probably wrong. Um, let me know on Twitter at PaperDiceGames or PaperDiceGames at gmail.com if I'm wrong or what your thoughts are. But that's what I think. Now, gatekeeping is harmful. It's harmful for many reasons. Um, I'll say a few. First of all, it stifles growth and diversity. There's a lot of hobbies out there that have a lot of gatekeepers, and a lot of those hobbies are dying. Uh, quite frankly, um, I've seen, uh, well, I'm not going to call out any specific hobbies. That's a great way to get yelled at. Um, but if, if you're, if, if a large amount of your player base or your, your hobbyists are gatekeepers, you're just not going to grow as a hobby. People get old and then eventually people either lose interest or everybody dies at some point. Right. And so you're just not going to continue growing the hobby, which is negative for everybody in the hobby. Um, it also stifles diversity. A lot of uh, gatekeeping that occurs, quite frankly, occurs um, towards people who hit any number of minority demographics. And uh, that's a big, big problem because in my opinion, your hobby should be very, very representative because game, well, specifically gaming, because games are awesome. Games should be for everybody. And if you have gatekeepers, you're going to hurt your diversity. Now, what this does is it reduces innovation and new ideas. And if you don't have growth or diversity or innovation or new ideas, you're going to see your hobby die. All bad things for the hobby, right? Uh, also, in my opinion, gatekeeping makes the hobby less fun. It's no fun to be around a gatekeeper. Uh, and it's also just plain unpleasant. A lot of gatekeeping has this kind of aggressive tone to it. And when people go to play games, they don't want to be experiencing aggression. So, for all those reasons, gatekeeping is generally uh, harmful. Now, here's the kind of the, the main question that I, that I come to with conversations like this. is like, how do you fix it or how do you avoid gatekeeping? Uh, and I'll take a look at this through two lenses. I'll do it through a personal lens and then through an external lens. So personally, uh, I find myself in the position 
of a potential gatekeeper and the lure of status as gatekeeping as an easy way to attain status. It's there. I can feel it when I'm talking to somebody about role playing games about, I don't know, I I play Magic the Gathering a lot. um, So about Magic the Gathering, um, about any number of topics. And so the way I try and think about it is instead of when I feel that gatekeeping urge kind of coming on, I try to try to put on the mindset of that really agreeable DM where you are, you know, a player suggests something and instead of saying, nah, that's not going to work, you say yes and, right? And that's how I try and approach gatekeeping as a hobbyist is when a new energetic person comes in with new ideas, maybe with misunderstandings about the hobby, whatever, I try and take the mindset of saying yes and so yeah that's really great what you're talking about is really great and here is something else you should check out in the hobby because this is also exciting and so that's what i try and do and say when i start feeling myself in the place of a gatekeeper is i welcome the new player in i i and i agree with what they're what they're energized about and enthusiastic about in the hobby and then I show them some other fun things or connect them with other people. And I think that's a really great way to go about it. Now, the other thing that might occur is you might be doing a good job of that, but you might experience and kind of be a, a bystander or whatever for a um, somebody else gatekeeping your hobby to a new player. Uh, and this is a much more challenging, in my opinion, um, prospect because... A lot of times you can be friendly with this person or already have a relationship and, and um, rebuffing someone, you know, it could put strain on the relationship, that type of thing. Um, it, what I've found is if you can call out the gatekeeper uh, who is maybe not bringing new players in and rather pushing them out and just say, hey, like, that's not, you know, that's not why we're here. We're here to bring new players in and, you know, try and engage the new player and get them in. Um, but then don't just uh, don't just shut out the gatekeeper. Try and keep them engaged in the conversation and uh, allow them to get status in other ways. So if a gatekeeper is, you know, you're, you're standing around having a conversation, the gatekeeper says something like, oh, that's not true OSR. You know, that's that's new stuff. That's not what OSR is. You can come in and say, well, I think there's, you know, OSR is not well defined. I, you know, maybe it's not quite OSR. And then you talk to the new player. Have you seen blah? Like, have you seen this this example of an OSR system? Um, and then turn back to the person who is gatekeeping and give them a little bit of status. You know, say, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that this is a solid system that shows what OSR is? And then that way you both stop the gatekeeping from occurring. You bring the new player back into the conversation saying, hey, here's a place that you can check out. And then you throw the gatekeeper an opportunity to get the status that they want while maintaining a positive addition in the conversation. So just my thoughts on gatekeeping. Uh, I, I'm probably wrong on, on a few of them, but if you have anything, uh, any any responses, if you think I'm right, think I'm wrong, have any experiences with gatekeeping, please let me know. Again, Twitter at PaperDiceGames or through email PaperDiceGames at gmail.com. Now we're running out of time here. I only have a few more minutes. Um, I did want to go through a few questions. Uh, I was uh, checking out the internet in a few different areas. And uh, two questions came to mind that I wanted to answer to to the end of today's podcast. The first one is very interesting. Um, It is, the the question was basically, what are some good sci-fi alternatives to Starfinder? If you're not aware, Starfinder, I believe, um, now I'm not so sure because I'm talking in front of a camera. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe Starfinder is basically the in-space version of Pathfinder. 
And basically, they were asking, what are some other alternatives? So I will give you two good alternatives. The first is stars without number. If you find Starfinder a little too crunchy, a little too uh, challenging to run, I suggest stars without number. Stars without number feels like D&D in space. It's not the exact same, but that's what it feels like. It's a relatively simple system to run. I think it's free. Like, I think you can just download the 200-whatever-page PDF for free. Um, I'll put it in the show notes, I guess. And, you know, that can be there for you to play. Uh, Stars Without Number is also very exciting because it has something, uh, it has a minigame involved in it. And the minigame is involved with factions. So Stars Without Number takes place in space, uh, either in a system or amongst several systems. And it has a mechanic in there to generate factions within those systems. So corporations, secret societies, government entities, um, you know, pirate factions, things like that. And not only does it have you generate those factions, but it gives you mechanics to have uh, like gameplay within those factions. It gives them resources, it gives them motivations, it gives them moves that they can do to each other, uh, which builds a living world. So picture this, you're playing Stars Without Number, and your players run a session, you know, they blow up a base somewhere near an asteroid, and they leave. Okay, so players are gone, the DM sits down, they update the world notes, okay, this asteroid base is destroyed, and then they do what's called the faction turn. And they go around, and for each faction, they take a move, they figure out where their resources are. And so when the players come back, not only has this asteroid base been destroyed that the players know about because they did it, but these other things in the background also occurred. And as the players are playing the next session, they find out that, oh, other stuff happened that we were not involved in, and like we had no idea that that was going on while we were doing our thing. And it, it creates a very, very fun and engaging like living world so if you are looking for something lighter i guess than starfinder i suggest excuse me stars without number if you're looking for something a little more crunchier a little more realistic i suggest traveler traveler is my favorite space rpg um system and setting and uh it is crunchy it has uh withstood this test of time although it's definitely um it's got a very loyal and core following, and it's definitely, like, it's big, but it's not really D&D or Pathfinder big, so it's not that big, but it's still got a good following, and, and new people are finding the game. Um, it's a 2D6 system. You know, 8-plus is a success. It's a heavily skill-based system. Um, the really fun thing about Traveler is its character generation. In Traveler, you are not playing a level 0 character and a level 1 character and leveling up. Rather, in character, you are playing a character who has done all sorts of things in their life and now maybe they're 30 or 40 or 50 and they're just trying to make their way in the world they have this large history uh and baggage uh that comes along with them so with character creation basically you um you roll some dice and identify what career the character is going into and based on the gameplay of character creation since it is a mini game um you will get uh a history of your character within those four years you'll get skills which are basically the the way to advance in the game um, during character creation and you potentially will get some items money maybe even ships that type of thing but then after those four years are over you'll do it again and again and as long as you want to basically um, and it's a really really fun way to build a character um, traveler is not free but it's my favorite sci-fi rpg setting and system so if you're interested i suggest checking it out uh, i play mongoose version um, first or second is fine second's probably best um, but traveler uh 
the original Traveler is also good. Um, a few of the other ones are not as good. I've been told. I've never checked them out. Um, but if you're looking for something current-ish, second edition Mongoose is the place to go for that. So good sci- sci-fi alternatives to, star- um, to Starfinder would be Stars Without Number and Traveler. And the last question here as we close out the podcast is, second edition D&D has quite the following. What is so enjoyable about second edition D&D? And I thought this was a great question to answer because the season focus this season for the podcast is old school Dungeons and Dragons modules. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why second edition D&D has quite the following and continues to have the following, even though it's 40 plus years old. Um, The first one, in my opinion, is nostalgia. A lot of people like me uh, started in that era. It's got a very distinct feel and um, vision to it. Like the, you see a cover like this, you know, the, with the old D&D module and you can just tell Oh, that's an old school second edition D&D module or advanced Dungeons and Dragons or just D&D, whatever. Um, so nostalgia is a big part of it. It's got a very distinct feel, a very distinct look, and people are drawn to that. In fact, Magic the Gathering recently released a Dungeons and Dragons set, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, and one of their alternative arts was putting the card as if it is an old school D&D module. And so that's how iconic the look is of second edition. So nostalgia is a huge part of it, Uh, but that's just not it. Number two, I think there's some incredible settings in second edition and they're very, very different. There's Dark Sun, there's, uh, now I'm blanking, of course, Spelljammer. Um, There's like Ravenloft. There's, There's a lot of really, really interesting and different settings. Many of those settings are still used today which means after 40 years of innovation in the game, they're still good enough to be run. They haven't been put down, uh, which just shows the strength of the settings in second edition. Um, And then the last two, I think a lot of people don't realize or don't think about, but they're just as important. Uh, Number one, there's asymmetry to the game. All right. This is a um, something you don't see a lot in current Dungeons and Dragons. I'll give you an example in early D and D. If you are a thief, um, the thief will level up at a faster rate than, for example, the wizard or the cleric or the fighter. And so you get a party where the thief is level four, but the cleric is still level two. And the game is still balanced somewhat. That makes sense the way this works, but the thief is just going to level up faster up to a certain point. Another example of asymmetry. Level one wizards are awful. They are going to die and quickly if you do not protect them. They're, they're really bad. I think their starting health is 1d4. So imagine taking the time to roll up a character as a wizard or mage, I think is what it's called, and they have one health. I mean, you take a small fall. It's like that the meme for a video game. You know, you try and walk downstairs, but you walk off the edge, you fall and die. It's just like that. And so that's another example of asymmetry. Wizards at the beginning are awful. They're really, really bad. But when they get up to the higher levels, seven, eight, nine, they become really, 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 really good. And they're very, very hard to deal with um, if you're fighting a wizard or something like that. So there's incredible asymmetry in these rules. And I think that speaks to a lot of people because it's just different. You don't see asymmetry a lot in games anymore. And the last thing is there's a lot of raw edges to rules and this is something I know I personally enjoy Um, I'm all for streamlining games and that type of thing but I like little rules here or there that are a little bit caveats you know they're they're, they're handled just a little bit differently Um, you go about them in a different way and uh, it it's more to know it makes the system a little crunchier a little less streamlined a little harder to run but 
I think it adds something to the gameplay that a lot of really streamlined systems just don't have. If you're using the same dice resolution mechanic for every single conflict that comes along, I think you'll lose just a little bit of something. You lose a little bit of the wonder of role-playing games when a, you know, as opposed to second edition or any other um, kind of uh, yeah, more more raw-edged system where you come across a situation and you're like, oh, I'm not rolling 1d20 and adding my attribute for this. Rather, I'm doing X, Y, or Z. And yeah, it just adds to the wonder of the system. It changes things up. It makes you know scenarios more exciting and more dynamic. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that, appreciate that about second edition. So that's that. First of all, I want to thank you, everyone, for listening to the Paper Dice Games podcast. I said, first of all, I should have said last of all. Um, you can get in touch with me about the podcast. Any responses you have about the topic today, about the questions at the end, uh, you can get in touch with me on Twitter, at Paper Dice Games, or my email, paperdicegames at gmail.com. Don't forget, Bloodlines expansion for Dwarf Mine is free. Go to paperdicegames.com. You'll get the two-page download on the first post at the top there. Um, and then you can just use that with Dwarf Mine. And again, I'm hoping to have that out along with a few other expansions in about a month. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.